Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Good morning, beloved family. How are you doing? I pray that you're doing well. It's good to be with you this, my goodness, third week of Advent. Soon the little baby will be here. The little baby who controls and created the entire world, including you and me. You make sure that if you see that manger and a little baby in the manger and you're with your children, tell your children that that baby created them and grew up and died for them and loves them. Okay. We have been reading um, from this little booklet, The Man Who Was... I'm going to see if I can show it to you. The Man Who Was Really Santa Claus by Father Reverend Daniel A. Lord, S.J., and the imprimatur is 1954, and the quick explanation on the back cover. And you can order this from Refuge of Sinners, otherwise known as Mother of the Savior Publishing, um, or uh, thejoyfulcatholic.com, I believe. And it says, learn all about the man who was really Santa Claus. Learn the truth that there really was a Santa Claus, that the real Santa was a great Catholic bishop, and his name was St. Nicholas. See, Santa Claus, Santa, Saint, Sancta, and Nicholas, Santa Claus. <laughs> Learn about how an infamous poem changed the custom of an entire world. Learn all about his history, his tradition, his legend, his death, his story, and how it all started. With so much to learn about this wonderful saint, it is easy to see how the whole world loves St. Nicholas. So if your children say, is there really a Santa Claus? You tell them there is. And who the Santa Claus was, a fabulous bishop named St. Nicholas, who gave to the poor, who helped children, who performed many, many miracles. So, and lived in the very first few hundred years of the church. Um, And so we're looking at the legends, um, and it says, in a way, legends. Now, there's so far what we read up to the beginning of the little subtitle, The Legends, all true about St. Nicholas. But there are so many legends, and there are about other saints, too. I remember reading about one of my favorite saints in the whole world, uh, St. Joseph of Cupertino, who levitated, who performed miracles, who did such wonderful things. And um, legend, my spiritual director said, legend has it that he used to bring a whole flock of sheep into the chapel, and they would baa, and he'd celebrate Mass, and they'd baa right on cue. So whether, the, But it was a legend, and legends come from truths, and they may be completely true, they might be embellished, um, but it says, in a way, legends are the poetry of history. I love that. They are an expression of the spirit of the historical character around the stark facts that make up the life of a great man and the prosaic work of day following day. His contemporaries built up a sort of aura, 
an atmosphere, a spirit more characteristic of the man than his actual deeds as history records them. These legends are the stories that passed from mouth to mouth. These who received the hidden favors of some generous man told one another, half in secret, always in grateful appreciation. The things which the great man had not the time to write, he mentioned casually to his friends and acquaintances who passed them along for the enlightenment of others. Legends are the things which people remember of the great man's boyhood, the sudden flashes of his humor, the casual deeds that illustrated his character, the kindnesses he performed in the hope that his right hand would not know what his left hand did. But people heard and saw and remembered and repeated. Sometimes I'm sure friends and admirers made up stories, not because they wanted to lie, but because they felt that their story illustrated some virtue of the famous man or proved some point of his inner greatness. The legends of Washington and Lincoln are part of our great national tradition. Many of them are true to fact, Many of them are truer than fact, (laughs) for they are vivid instances of how people felt about them, the confidence they inspired, the virtues which shone forth with such conviction that they awoke the imagination to inspiring stories, partly historic, partly remembered, partly dreamed, partly imagined, partly growing out of the very character of the great. So... We can't always know what is legend and what is absolute fact. However, the history that we've read thus far is the history of St. Nicholas. Now, legends are told in three ways. The word legend comes from the Latin word legenda. Some things that ought to be read, some things worth reading. The legends of St. Nicholas probably were not written until centuries after they had been told. It's just the same as a family. You talk to one another, you hear stories of your aunt, your grandma, and you, you write it all. You don't write it down. You just pass it among the family, and everybody loves them and knows their history, knows their tradition. Um, and one day, uh, you know, someone's getting older and say, you know, we're, if we don't write this down, it's going to be lost. We need to write down all the things that grandma and grandpa did from the country they came from and all. So they write it down. And of course, some things are accurate and others are embellished with love and the tradition through the years as it's been passed down. The legends of St. Nicholas probably were not written, as it says here, until centuries after they had been told that they had been told over and over and over and over again is proved by the fact that all the writers of latter days write them in much the same fashion. During the Middle Ages, around the hearth fires or in the little cottages, the people loved a story just as much as we do. And their favorite heroes and heroines were the saints. Good, a good storyteller knew all the achievements of the great men and women of God. When paper grew less expensive, writers noted down the stories that had been traditional in their part of the world and interchanged with the storytellers from other countries. You know, as I'm reading this, 
I remember that most people prior to the 1500s were illiterate. They didn't know how to write. There was no printing press. We couldn't reproduce these things. Even the Bible itself was written by hand and took about a year's salary to write it. Very slow, letter by letter. The Golden Ledger, the Golden Legend, became an extended series of tales about the saints. And individual writers took characters like St. Cecilia, St. Agnes, St. George, making them the central figures in what was the nearest thing they had to the historical novel. So a great body of stories were told and then written with St. Nicholas for the hero. I have the book here, The Golden Legends, uh, mostly written for children and teens about the saints. It's truly wonderful. When the painters took up the brushes, St. Nicholas instantly became one of their favorite subjects. There was everything to illustrate in the exciting events of his life. So Fra Angelico, many of you know Fra Angelico, at least of his paintings, they're magnificent. Fra Angelico painted a whole series of pictures with St. Nicholas as the central character. Probably one of Fra Angelica's most famous paintings is that of the Annunciation with the Blessed Mother, the angel Gabriel coming to the Blessed Mother. But he's written, painted the whole series on the rosary, many, many things. The painters of the Renaissance used him, St. Nicholas, as one of their favorite subjects. When great saints were gathered into a single altarpiece around Christ and Our Lady, St. Nicholas was often there with the saints of the infancy. His miracles were carved into the stone of baptismal fonts. His deeds were immortalized in the lovely stained glass of cathedrals and parish churches. Uniquely, however, he became the hero of a whole cycle of medieval plays, the plays in which our modern theater had its beginning. St. Nicholas, as it turns out, you never knew so much about Santa Claus, did you? Neither did I. This is a wonderful book to read to your children. St. Nicholas, as it turns out, is almost the first non-biblical character on the stage of Christian times. These miracle plays were done for hundreds of years by the choir boys and acolytes of Europe to the delight of the audiences, which year after year came to thrill to the tragedy and melodrama, melodrama, the laughter and real farce of these wonderful little ploys, little plays, I should say. (laughs) For plots, the original dramatists used the traditional stories of the saints. The treatment varied with the country and the times. But whether the legends were told to hushed listeners or read in the pages of the golden legend or studied in the works of great artists or watched by enthusiastic audiences, they remained part of the tradition of a deeply loved saint. Proofs of his interest in humanity and new reason for an enthusiastic welcome extended to him when the Christmas season drew near. Of course, his feast day is uh, this December 6th that we've just passed. And over the years, uh, St. Nicholas's uh, legend and feast day just came a little closer and closer to Christmas, where it was on December 6th that the gifts were given in imitation of St. Nicholas. And it's not that we received gifts so much 
it's that we were to imitate St. Nicholas in giving gifts. You see, the same thing at Christmas. Christ came to give us life, uh, to give one another gifts. That's just came from tradition. That That's not why God came to earth, that we would give one another gifts, a new bicycle, a new doll, whatever it is. Um, but the idea of imitating our Lord in giving gifts to one another is very good. I don't, I don't make any, I put any negativity to it. It's very, very good as long as we don't lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing. And as many of the stores say, the reason for the season. Okay. Here's some famous stories about St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas's affections, affection for schoolboys, particularly endeared him to his clients. So no legends were better beloved or more keenly relished than the many that involved small boys. In one, a father gives a party for his young son, inviting to it a number of his school chums. The devil hates the father for his generally fine character the son for his notable obedience and all small boys for their innocence. So as the party is in joyous progress, the devil raps at the door, wearing the one disguise that guarantees his welcome. He arrives as a pious pilgrim. The father instantly dispatches his son to care for the devilish pilgrim. And the boy carries him food and drink and his father's warm greetings. The devil promptly chokes the lad, destroying his body if he cannot touch his soul. Needless to say, the father is frightfully distressed, but his prayer turns to the unfailing St. Nicholas. The saint instantly responds, appears miraculously, restores the throttled son to life, returns him to the arms of his father and to the party which continues its un, its interrupted course with additional joy. I can think of nothing that would add more to a party than a first-class miracle. Well, that's very good, but I, I want to see St. Nicholas destroy that Satan devilish pilgrim. That's what I want to see. The troubles of boys quickly won a response from the saint, no matter how impossible the task imposed upon him. No matter how impossible, um, I read that, sorry. In the terrifying fashion of the day, the Muslims came down upon the harbor town and snatched up the son of a Christian merchant. Here's another uh, legend. It doesn't mean this is false, doesn't mean that a legend's not a fairy tale. It's, again, a story that's been passed down uh, through tradition and finally written down and probably embellished by being passed from one to another. But this is the story. In a terrifying fashion of the day, the Muslims came down upon the harbor town and snatched up the son of a Christian merchant. Over the sea they carried him, shackled with the other slaves in the hold of the galley. Because he was a fine, attractive lad, the boy was sold into the household of the sultan, whose steward appointed him a cupbearer to royalty. Reminds us of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Considering the current fear of poison, it's hard to understand why they put a slave in a spot so favorable to assassination, but they did. The fate of the lad was a dreary one. 
But on the feast of St. Nicholas, his troubles reached a climax. He was assigned to present the cup to the banqueting sultan and the monarch, looking from the cup to the face of the slave, noticed that there was sadness and a trace of tears. A countenance like that had no place at his festive board. So the sultan ordered the slave of the uh, clouded brow roundly flogged. All this, had he only realized a mistake on the feast of a saint very fond of small boys, as the blows fell, the lad prayed to St. Nicholas. To the amazement of the banqueters, the saint appeared, picked up the lad who had been spread-eagled spread eagled on the dining-room floor and carried him off, the cup and all, to return him to his delightful parents. I am so glad that he took the cup as well as the lad. The precious drinking goblet was part payment for his days of enslaved service to the sultan. Well, these are stories I've never heard before, and I'm not sure they'll prepare you for Christmas, but they will, to think how wonderful Santa is. He's St. Nicholas is not just a jolly old man who sits in Macy's waiting for children to come to his lap. Now, how that got started, I don't know, but probably from a legend of his goodness to children. Here's another one, and this is more for children. One mysterious legend never quite explains itself. The reader is left to draw his own conclusions, and mine, the author says, were not too clear. I don't like that. I don't like being left in the air. I want to know the conclusion. My uncle told us when we were little children, he told us a story of a woman who got on the bus, an elderly woman who got on a bus. And after a while, she was taken or thrown off the bus. And he said, why? Well, as kids, he would ask us this twice a year. And we, we, we thought of everything. She didn't pay the fare. She got sick. Uh, whatever. I don't know. We came up with all kinds of things. And everything was wrong. And now I'm, I'm, now I'm 150 years old, and I still don't know the answer. And it's bothered me my whole life. <laughs> I like conclusions. Okay. Here's one. A wealthy nobleman had long been without a son, a great handicap in the days when an eldest son was guaranteed that the property stayed in the family. So he promised St. Nicholas that in return for a son, he would give the saint a beautiful golden chalice for his altar. In due course, his wife presented him with a charming infant boy. The nobleman ordered the goldsmiths to make him the best possible chalice, and all went merry as a wedding or baptismal bell. Let me see. Yeah. Did I do that right? Yeah. Okay. But when the nobleman saw the chalice which the jewelers had prepared, he fell in love with it. He decided he would not give his cup to the saint but immediately ordered a substitute cup. For some reason, the baby was given the first cup to play with. Maybe, like a lot of later infants, he reached out and grabbed it. For reaching too far, he fell into the water and was not merely drowned, 
but lost to sight and recovery. Oh my goodness, what a story. As the father was dis, um, consonantly, he, he couldn't be uh, consoled. <laughs> I can't say the word. Mourning his terrible loss, the second cup, the substitute for the one that had been promised, arrived. The father took it to the shrine of St. Nicholas and laid it on the altar. It promptly rolled to the floor. He replaced it, and this time it seemed to be rejected with an emphatic, if invisible, gesture. The father, bewildered, laid it down again on the altar table, and it rattled to the floor with a great crash. By this time, people had gathered, amazed at the sight of the cup, hurtling through space. This brought the father to his knees, and he lifted his arms in prayer to St. Nicholas. Before him was his little son, the lost cup in his hands. That's before St. Nicholas was his little son, when Saint Nick, the son who had drowned. Here's a picture, beloved. See if you could see that. See that? St. Nicholas holding the little boy that had drowned and holding the cup, and there's his father. This book has wonderful illustrations. Okay, so it brought the fathers to his knees, and he lifted his arms in prayer to St. Nicholas. Before him um, was his little one, little son, and the lost cup in his hands. St. Nicholas had snatched him from the sea and restored him to his overjoyed father. I am pleased to report that the grateful father took his son home and watched over him with more care, and that behind him he left both the cups to be used in the masses and uh, set at the altar of the saint. Now, I don't know why there's not a conclusion to that story. It certainly seemed like a complete story to me. I don't know. Um, Okay, now. Um, Are you up for another story? I'm not sure how much time we have. I don't want to start a story and leave you in suspense. Um, But I may need to do that. I may need to do that. You know what? I think at the moment we've had enough stories for today. And they're all on St. Nicholas. And you know what? I believe them all. I believe them all. Unless we become as little children, we can't enter the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing wrong to believing these stories. Again, they started from somewhere. They started, again, from uh, what actually happened and was passed on by tradition. And by the time it was written down, they might be a bit embellished for sure. But there's truth behind them. So I tell you, beloved... Get this book, The Man Who Was Really Santa Claus. And you can you can get it in time for Christmas. And you should read this to your children. The whole week before Christmas, sit down, beloved, in the evening and prepare your family for Christmas and read the story of St. Nicholas or uh, read um, good books for Christmas Eve. You know what should happen, that your Christmas Eve... Go to Mass, beloved. Go to Mass with your family Christmas Eve, even if you also go Christmas Day. There's nothing like going to Mass when the baby comes, um, when that little baby is born on Christmas Eve, December 24th. Go to Mass, beloved. When you come back from Mass, if you do as we do, then light the tree, and then light your house outside. Everything's in place. 
but light it when you come back from mass. Put the baby in the manger and have make hot chocolate or s'mores or something. Don't open gifts. Sit around and read stories and pray together. And if you have gifts as the traditional Christmas celebration, they could be opened first thing in the morning. That would be good. You can open them at night. There's no should here. But it would be good to spend Christmas Eve focused on the Christ child and all that he's done for us and all that he's, excuse me, doing in the manger in holding the world together and focusing on the fact that this beautiful little baby in this beautiful manger scene, all babies are born to live, but this baby was born to die. And Mary's yes gave him to us. And her yes would also be her yes to his being put on the cross. Mary, Mary suffered with him. That's right. And um, uh, Simeon prophesied that a sword would also pierce her heart, and it did seven times. We have the seven sorrows of Mary, beginning with Simeon's prophecy in Luke chapter 2. We'll never know the sacrifice. We'll never know the sacrifice our Lord has made for us. But your children should be uh, begin to know that. Your children should begin to know that. Think about, um, oh, I don't know what analogy to bring up. Think about beloved. It looks like that's music for our break. Um, you won't be able to call in today, but um, you can email at mother at the station of the cross.com. We'll be right back. Is there a program you heard at a particular time that you'd like to learn more about, but you don't know the title or how to find it? Our online programming grid offers a complete list of shows. Just visit thestationofthecross.com and click the Programs tab at the top of the page. Here you'll find the link to our programming schedule. That's at thestationofthecross.com. The Station of the Cross invites you to join us each day for the Liturgy of the Hours at 5 a.m., 3 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. The Liturgy of the Hours is the daily prayer of the Church and is made up of readings from sacred scripture, writings from saints and theologians, and small reflections. For details about each hour and more information about the Liturgy of the Hours, visit thestationofthecross.com. We hope you'll join us for this daily prayer of the Church each day at 5 a.m., 3 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on The Station of the Cross. Are you having a hard time keeping up with all that's going on these days in the Vatican? Did you know that LifeSite puts out a monthly print news magazine in beautiful full color? Our magazine, Faithful Insight, gives you all the most important coverage from Rome and lets you read it away from the computer, phone, or tablet. It summarizes dozens of new happenings down to the essentials, but provides full analysis on all the most important developments. Faithful Insight brings you the coverage of the Vatican that you know and expect from LifeSite in a different form. It has received high praise from cardinals, bishops, priests, and faithful who want to stay abreast of the most crucial battle in our time, the battle for the soul of the Church. Subscribe today at FaithfulInsight.com and may God bless you. 
Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Welcome back to Mother Miriam Live. Did you hear me? Welcome back to Mother Miriam Belive. Uh, Live, beloved. How's that? Belive. That's welcome back to Mother Miriam Alive, beloved. (laughs) I'm a little mixed up today. God bless you. And this is our half hour together. Um, And um, we're pre-recording today, beloved. Um, And so you won't be able to call in. I'm traveling a bit this week, but everything is fresh and pre-recorded for you day by day. And so we're going to now take your emails. If not your live calls, we will take your text and emails. And we have one from um, Zudita. We're not quite sure how to pronounce your name, dear one. Um, And she says, are there any audible sources for the full catechism that you recommend? Thanks. You know, Zudita, I've never um, looked that up. So offhand, I do not know that, but I will look it up. Um, uh, The full catechism, if anyone's... uh, um, wondering what it is that I recommended. It's the Council of Trent. It's the Catechism Explained is what it's called. The Catechism Explained. And um, let's see. Uh, I don't have a copy at the moment with me, but um, you could look up online in quotes, uh, do a search engine, The Catechism Explained. And then just look up to see if it's online. I don't know if there's an audio version of that. I would be surprised surprised if there was, but it would be wonderful. We have an email from Jeff and Erin, and uh, they write, Hi, Mother. We love your show very much. Thank you both. Um, we have two sons, ages nine and seven, And we are fostering a 13-year-old girl. We were called to foster when we met our foster girl two years ago. At that time, she had been in and out of foster care for nearly three years. And that is too long. When our girl was cleared for adoption just about a week ago, we were filled with great joy to be able to adopt her. And she and the boys are excited, too. That joy quickly diminished after we received backlash from certain extended family and friends. They said that adopting someone older than our sons may compromise our relationship with them. And sadly, there are articles that support their claim. Jeff and Aaron, I'm going to continue reading their e- your email, but just forget what those people say. Just forget it. Just picture that that news came to you from the devil himself and just throw it out. I'll continue reading your email. Um, however, during our girl's two-year stay with us, the boys quickly bonded with her and said they love her unconditionally, just like we do. How can we alleviate the fears of our family and friends 
and assure them that we are doing the right thing. We truly believe God led us to our 13-year-old and that she is our gift from him. And you're right, she is. Thank you for your advice, and God bless you. Well, to begin with, if it's not too late, don't let the children hear such garbage. Don't let them hear that. They should not know that. Your 13-year-old shouldn't know it, and your two sons should not know it. So just keep that out of their hearing. And secondly, uh, she you've adopted her. She's your daughter. They have no say. They have no say. And if they want to mention anything to you, say, you know, she's our daughter. We don't want any negative talk at all from you anymore. Nothing's going to change. And make sure that you don't, that our children don't hear you say those things. All right. So just quiet your extended family. If they start saying something, say, you know what? It's not of interest to us. She is our daughter, and we would no more give her up than one of our sons. So no more conversation. I don't want any negativity. And if you're distressed at this, then we just need you to keep your distance. I'd be very, very clear and very strong about it. The girl that you've adopted and your sons... Your three children are more important than your entire extended family put together. Don't worry about pleasing them. Educate them, not through conversation, but just by living your family and telling them to hush up and keep their opinions to themselves. And if they want to help, stop talking between themselves. Okay, I'd be very, very clear on this. Very, very clear. Um, we have an email from Parker who writes, Hello, Mother Miriam. I hope you are doing well. Not long ago, I went to church for the purpose of going to daily mass. I'm going to stop for a minute to say, Jeff and Aaron, dear ones, if my comeback, my strong uh, comeback on your situation against your extended family and their poor uh, ideas, um, uh, if if there's further problems, I would invite you to email again or even to call online if you can, because your extended family have no say and should not affect you and your children in the least, even if you have to move. Uh, don't let them destroy anything. Okay, an email from Parker. Um, Hello, Mother Miriam. I hope you are doing well. Not long ago, I went to church for the purpose of going to daily Mass. When I got to church, I saw there was a parish school Mass. I decided to stay anyway because I knew I would be pleasing to the Lord. Plus, I was curious on how they celebrated Mass. Every form of debauchery that you have spoken about before was indeed present, and needless to say, I was horrified, though I wasn't surprised either. If I could do that day all over again, I probably should have walked out the moment I saw that it was the school mass, knowing how offended I would feel. 
Being that I am in my mid-twenties, it seems as if the previous generation still thinks being of the world is how to attract children, and my generation has been brainwashed in these practices. Uh, It looks like that's the music for our next break, beloved. And so um, we'll be right back and we'll continue with this email from Parker. God bless you. Love learning more about the church, but confused or disheartened by the struggles we are facing today? Follow LifeSite News Catholic on Facebook, Twitter, or sign up for LifeSite Catholic emails and stay up to date on the constant stream of news about the Catholic Church. Our church is in a time of crisis, and we as laity have a responsibility and a duty to educate ourselves and stay true to the faith. LifeSite News Catholic is dedicated to keeping the laity informed and educated. To follow us, go to Facebook or Twitter and search LifeSite News Catholic. As Mother Miriam always says, we must live as if it were true. Did you know you could listen to our network-produced programs whenever you'd like? Stream podcasts instantly on our iCatholic Radio mobile app or download through our website, thestationofthecross.com. That's instant streaming on iCatholic Radio or downloading podcasts at thestationofthecross.com. Tune in weekdays from 6 to 7 a.m. Eastern Time for Sermons for Everyday Living. There's no better way to start your day than by tuning in to hear real sermons from real priests on topics important to you and your faith. For details about upcoming episodes and for podcasts of past shows, visit thestationofthecross.com and click on Sermons for Everyday Living under the Programs tab. That's Sermons for Everyday Living weekdays from 6 to 7 a.m. Eastern on the Station of the Cross. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. This is our last segment, and we've got over 15 minutes, so let's stay together, and I'm going to take as many emails as we can. We were right in the middle of an email from Parker. I'll begin right at the beginning and read it more quickly. Parker says, Hello, Mother Miriam. I hope you're doing well. Not long ago, I went to church for the purpose of going to daily Mass. When I got to church, I saw that there was a parish school Mass. I decided to stay anyway because I knew I would be pleasing the Lord. Plus, I was curious on how they celebrated Mass 
every form of debauchery that you have spoken about before was indeed present, and needless to say, I was horrified, though I wasn't surprised either. Parker goes on to say, If I could do that day all over again, I probably should have walked out the moment I saw it was the school mass, knowing how offended I would feel. Being that I am in my mid-twenties, it seems as if the previous generation still thinks being of the world is how to attract children, and my generation has been brainwashed in these practices, unfortunately. With that being said, what would make a mass attractive to a private school? Thank you for your powerful daily teachings. P.S. I recite the prayer to St. Michael after every Mass for the atrocities that I just described, and now it is one of my favorite prayers, St. Michael the Archangel, pray for us and defend us in battle. Well, your question, Parker, what would be make a Mass attractive to a private school? Nothing needs to be done to the Mass it needs to be what it is, holy and reverent. There should not be a different mass for children versus adults. I also, this morning, um, walked into a children's mass, and I often forget that it's Friday. And I, my heart sinks when I see all the children. I said, oh, no, it's Friday, because we have to sit through what is extremely poor. Um, and it, it's it's really, really awful. But now our Lord sits through it. It's still the mass. And um, they don't know. The teachers don't know that they're teaching the children incorrectly. They don't understand the irreverence. They don't understand that they're doing things against rubrics. They just don't know that. Should they know it? They should know it. Yes. But I'm going to guess they're innocent, unfortunately, of that. They're not taught. So we do stay and we pray for them and we sit through the Mass and we receive Holy Communion and uh, we do our best. But uh, on Fridays. It's, it's very painful every Friday, indeed. And yes, we can go to another Mass. Um, um, but again, if you say what Mass is attractive to a private school, it doesn't matter if it's a private school or 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 Sunday Mass. It's the same. It should never change. It should never change. Children should not be up on the, in that sanctuary, reading the scriptures, saying the prayers. That should not happen. So, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, the children that are holding the patent under those receiving communion, they're not trained. The patent is not under the hands or the mouths of those who receive, and the, the, it's all over the place. So it's extremely poor, Parker. So when you know in advance it's going to be a children's mass, then simply go to another parish that doesn't have a children's mass if you wish. We can do that. Um, if you can't... Um, um, then, then you go to mass with the children, or you uh, refrain from mass that day. That that needs to be your personal decision. Um, I just wish uh, it's it's such a shame that children should be exposed to such irreverence um, as goes on at most children's masses, most school masses. These aren't little children. Where I was today, it's at least middle school. And it's it's I see it as tragic that young people should behave as they do and be trained as they do to be part of the mass. Um, we just need to pray and we need to uh, maybe inhabit the parishes or speak to the priests and and maybe suggest how we could help make things better without being critical. We have an email from Tommy who says, good morning, mother. I am someone who works in e-commerce where you're working with online transactions 
for goods and services. I don't understand this sentence. I am someone who works in e-commerce where you are working with online online transactions for goods and services. Okay. When I work at the office daily, the stress level is extremely high, and there are many coworkers and managers who scream profanities daily. I want to quit my job extremely badly, but the problem is that this job pays well, and it is currently the only way I can support myself and my family. A quick side note. I was listening to your December 5th show, and I heard you talking to a mother whose son keeps asking for money while having a job that doesn't support him well. Whether he likes his job or not, I have reason to think that employment is extremely scarce for many, especially those that pay well. In my humble opinion, I used to think that I'd feel better if I had a low-paying job that I like rather than a high-paying job that I detest. But with me raising a family and being the only breadwinner, as tradition has it, it's hard for me to think this way. Given all those circumstances, should I quit my job with a toxic working environment and search for a new one? And if I do quit and find a lower paying job, how should I explain this to my wife and children? I believe if I do quit, I want it to be an opportunity to teach my children about patience and how God provides what we need rather than what we want. Thank you in advance for your advice on this matter. Um, Tommy, um, I would say the opposite of what you're suggesting. Should you quit your job with a toxic working environment and search for a new one? And he says, if I do quit and find a lower paying job, how should I explain this to my wife and children? To begin with, you shouldn't do that without discussing it with your wife. Your children don't need to be involved, but you, you don't quit a job without discussing it with your wife and you don't quit a job without having another one. So you don't do that and then tell your wife you'd be functioning on your own, not as head of the family. So to begin with, it's something for you and your wife to talk about. Um, and you don't explain it to your children. It's, it's your decision. And you, and Tommy says, I believe if I do quit, I want it to be an opportunity to teach my children about patience. That will not be an opportunity. You have an opportunity to teach your children about patience in the, um, in the poor environment you're working in now. If you leave and you satisfy yourself in a better environment with a low-paying job, you won't need patience, you see? And then you'll be presuming on God, not trusting him, presuming on him to supply your needs. No, Tommy, you need to be grateful for the job you have. And if everyone around you screams, screams profanity, then just it's, it's a time for you to lift your heart to God and say, Dear Lord, thank you for your love for them, for your love for me. Thank you that you've changed my heart and given me life, and I pray for them that somehow you'd use my example, my good example, not contradicting them, not coming against them, not correcting them, uh, nothing, just your good example of love and virtue to convert them. Um, that's what you pray for. Now, if you happen to find a, a better job that pays well, like your current job, then you leave one job for the other, but you don't quit your job to find a lower paying one. And if you find a lower paying one, then you don't let your family do without or presume on God. Then you have to get two jobs to support your family. That's your vocation. So, Tommy, uh, I worked for a restaurant once. As a waitress, and I was looking into the Catholic Church at the time. I wasn't Catholic yet. I was an evangelical Protestant. And the waitresses, it was in a very poor area of town where the owner of the 
um, adult video store across the street had been shot and murdered the week before I went to work for them. And the waitresses were out of jail. They were in their 20s and 30s. And the profanities were insane. Some of them were prostitutes. It was crazy there. And I spent the first two weeks listening to all their language, including what they most spoke, Jesus Christ, as a swear uh, expression. And I said, now, what am I going to do? What am I going to do about this? And I just came up with a little plan. And I didn't look upset or anything. But after two weeks, the next time I heard someone say, Jesus Christ, I shouted out, I love him. And they said, what? I said, I love him. And they said, you love who? I said, Jesus Christ. They said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you said his name. And they said, oh, you got to be kidding are you one of those religious fanatics? I said, no, I'm a Christian, but uh, uh, did we offend you? No, you can't offend me. You can say his name as much as you want. I love him. Believe me, I truly do. And yeah, so they would say it. And I'd hear it across the whole restaurant in the middle of a lunch hour. I would scream out across the restaurant, I love him. And within a week and a half, no one ever used his name in vain. They'd say, come on, Roz, Rosalind, my given name. Come on, Roz. We don't mean anything by it. I said, I know you don't. Don't worry about it. Say it as much as you want. I love him. I love hearing the name. And they stopped saying it altogether. And not only that, but because I didn't criticize them, they didn't feel judged. They felt loved. I was fine. Um, they really started watching not just their language, but their behavior around me. And it, it's a wonderful thing. So, Tommy, be creative. Be creative and let your heart be at rest. And every time you hear something, trust that the foul language and all of that is straight from God, allowing it for you to say a prayer for them. And maybe you'll pray them into salvation. That would be fantastic. Okay. We have an email from Francis who writes, Mother Miriam, I recently got appointed to be the new head coach for the basketball team at my son's Catholic high school. It is said that a person is a winner in Christ who follows his example and disciplines themselves. And of course, I know there will come a time that my team will be dealing with defeat after working so hard to prepare. As tough as losses may be, How can I teach sportsmanship to the kids and that we should always give glory and thanksgiving to God, no matter what the outcome is of any game? After all, St. Paul said in his first letter to the Thessalonians that we must give thanks to God in all circumstances. Thank you for your advice, Mother. God bless. Well, um, if you teach sportsmanship, it has nothing to do with winning or losing. It has to do with honoring God and playing well, and giving all that you have. If you give all that you have and you lose, you please God. If you don't give all that you have and you win, you don't please God, even though you've won. So we do everything for the glory of God, whether we eat or drink or sleep, St. Paul says, do all to the glory of God. This is a Catholic high school, and say, you know what? Um, It's up to God whether we win. We don't know. We can't tell the future. Our job is to give it all that we can. And if we lose, to give the example of brotherly love and good sportsmanship to the team that won. Because if we won, we wouldn't want them cursing us out. We wouldn't want them to be depressed. We would want them to receive their loss from God. We need to do the same. We need to set an example. And you know what? If we're poor at this, God will surely probably have us lose because we need to learn those lessons. So the idea of playing is to glorify God 
and give it everything you have. And if we win, blessed be his name. And if we lose, then the other team needed to win and we needed to lose to learn how to be gracious, to learn um, to accept our losses as our Lord certainly accepted his. We have to learn that in our lives, we're probably going to hear have more failures than successes. We're probably going to hear more no's than yeses. We're probably going to have more losses than wins. But that's how we build character. That's how we build strength. If losing crushes us, well, then um, we haven't just lost a game, but we've lost character. And we need to be men of God and pray for God to have the team that he wants to win and simply go out there and give it our all. Francis, I don't know if that helped, but I hope it did, dear one. Don't make winning all. It'd be the same with parents and children. It's it's not children that just bring home A's that please the parents. It's children that, a, a child that brings home a C plus may have a better character than a child who brings home an A. Character is the issue. Giving it all is the issue. Someone could have an A and not give it all. And someone could have a C plus and give it all they have. And they are the ones in God's sight who has won. So character is the issue. Giving it all is the issue. And that's what our children need to learn. We have an email from Weston who says, if Mary was able to be preserved from original sin without it affecting her free will... Why didn't God do the same thing for all of us? Oh, my dear Weston, that's a backward thing. Um, Yes, God gave Mary a singular grace in being preserved from original sin for the reason that she would bear the Savior of the world and that the Savior of the world is God who could not dwell in a body that had any sin. He could not dwell in her womb for nine months uh, if she had any sin in her, any trace of sin whatsoever, uh, just like the tabernacle in the Old Testament. If you had any sin, you'd be struck dead on the spot. Um, I think, beloved, that's our uh, closing music. But um, I'd say, Weston, um, it, it's, it's a lack of gratitude to say, why didn't God do the same thing for us? What he did for us is die on the cross and it's only because of his death on the cross that he was able to do what he did for Mary and she alone could say um, uh, how great is the Savior in her Magnificat Um, marvelous things he has done for me because of what he did for us at our baptisms Um, we'll speak with you all tomorrow beloved